Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Revelation, working our way through this book on Sunday mornings. We find ourselves in the fifth chapter this morning, and the, the Apostle John, while exiled on Patmos, the island of Patmos, um, for his faith in Christ, receives there an incredible set of visions. And uh, at a later time, John comes back and he records these in the book that we call Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse. And John begins by having a great vision of Christ and uh, Christ's interaction with his churches. He presents himself as the glorious God and, and, and a caring Father. And he walks among his churches and he inspects them and he's there to, to uh, encourage them with his presence and his word. And then from that vision, John writes these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These are representative of all churches in all time, most likely. There are certainly lessons there for all of us from all the churches. And there are positive things John writes about that can be commended. And there are things that each of these churches need to work on. And we have received uh, much instruction from these letters. Now, chapter 4 now is a transition from the contemporary circumstances that John finds himself in in these churches. And, and now John is uh, ushered into heaven. We'll read this in just a moment. We'll read the first couple of verses of chapter 4. John hears the voice of a great trumpet. It's the sound of the voice of Christ who invites him into the third heaven and a realm beyond the dimensions of this universe to not just heaven itself, but its very epicenter and center, the throne room of God. And there John witnesses something that will occur in the future, and, and that is when all the hosts of heaven and ten thousands times ten thousands, the word myriad in the, in the Greek was the highest numerical value that could be stated. It simply means uh, an endless, countless number of angelic beings and heavenly hosts and the redeemed of mankind singing praise to God. It's an incredible scene that we discussed last week, and it continues for us today. And we're about to move now into the future as we go into chapter 6 and, and the great uh, vile and bold judgments are unleashed upon the earth. And so if you would go ahead and stand with me as we read our text this morning. I'll read the first two verses of chapter 4. And verse 5 is just really a continuation of John's vision. This is his second vision. The first being of Christ among the churches and now of this future day before the great tribulation. So verse 1 of chapter 4, the Bible says, And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. In chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within, on the backside, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loosen the seven seals thereof. 
And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And it's made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and, and unto the Lamb <clears throat> forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen, or so be it. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Our Heavenly Father, for the next few moments, as we consider, Lord, the wonder, the splendor, the majesty of this text, that, Lord, we could catch. <laughs> And, and the ability that's possible, Lord, a vision of the throne, Lord, of your sovereign rule over this universe, and, and Lord, of the coming day that, Lord, this world would be brought to account before you. And Lord, I, <clears throat> I pray that when that day comes that everyone in this room will be found in you, their sins forgiven, Lord, having accepted you as Lord and Savior, and Lord, having experienced your salvation. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray we'd realize today that among the myriad of things that we think we need, Lord, what we utterly need in this world is simply you. And I pray for your help as we consider the message in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. <clears throat> Throughout history, there have been many pretenders to the thrones of the earth. Men who have sought to conquer and to rule the world. The first and most notorious usurper, of course, was Satan himself. Once a seraphim, an archangel, his intent was to magnify and to display and to praise the glory of God as he sat on the throne. In time, though, Lucifer, pride being within him, turned and rebelled against the God whom he was to serve, and he made an attempt to overthrow the Lord's dominion. But his rebellion was crushed, and his angelic followers were all thrown out of heaven. And in this fall came the fall of Adam, and Satan became the God of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Satan inspired others to follow in his footsteps, and such men attempted to rebel against God and to overthrow his plan. Nimrod, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Alexander the Great, the emperors of Rome, 
Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Lenin, Stalin, and Hitler. All these men followed in the steps of Satan in the grand desire to conquer the world. All these men in a host of lesser lights have one thing in common. They all failed. They all lost. There is only one who has the right and the power and the authority and the glory to rule over this earth, over all of creation, and that is, of course, our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what is in view in Revelation chapter 5. This is the moment when Jesus Christ takes from the hand of God a book. Really, it's a scroll. Um, when they reference that, the kind of book that we have today had not really been invented. And so this would have been a, a sealed scroll, a parchment. And there had been writing, as the Bible says in the text, both inside and on the outside. And this is the book, I don't know how to, to, to define it, it's the book of human history. This is the book of destiny. This is the book of authority. This is the title deed of the earth, if you will. And Jesus Christ claims once and for all to accept this book, to accept this, this scroll, and to uh, have the right to rule and to judge all the universe. And he does so to the praise and adulation of all men and a heavenly host. The events of chapter 5 occur sequentially or immediately after the events of chapter 4. Most likely these events are somewhat in the future before the great day of the Lord, before the, the great tribulation. And in that chapter 4, that great fantastic chapter, John was invited into the realm of heaven. The very center of heaven, the throne room. An incredible scene in the throne room of God where God presides himself in majesty and glory and impenetrable light. No man can look upon God and live and neither can any of the heavenly creatures. The scene is overwhelming. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It's thundering. It's lightning. It's terrifying. God in his Shekinah glory uh, and his light is magnitude through the prism of diamonds and rubies and emeralds. There's a sea of crystal beneath an encircling beautiful rainbow above. And round about the throne are these four, um, these superlatives escape me today, these four incredible creatures, seraphim, cherubim, who Ezekiel tries to describe, Daniel tries to describe. They, they really defy uh, any description. They are wonderful, they are majestic, and they, they stand around the throne of God to do His bidding. And they are the, one of the pinnacles of His creation. There are 24 elders on thrones themselves with lesser crowns, most likely representative of the redeemed of humanity. And then there's an incalculable number of angels and heavenly beings all there together singing and praising God. I can't imagine the scene. There's times here at Eastland Baptist Church when I feel like we're all really singing and everyone's into it. And it's just so incredible and it's wonderful. And can you imagine then just church upon church added to that? And then the choir of angels and the seraphim and the elders all singing together. What an unimaginable scene that's got to be. We will literally be spending an eternity witnessing this and we will never get over it. The scene was a wonder of wonders and something that we will be enthralled with for eternity when heaven becomes our home. In chapter 5, Jesus takes claim to what has been all along rightfully His. 
It's the moment the entirety of creation has been groaning for. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, that since the day of the fall, the creation has been groaning for its redemption in a Savior. This is what John witnesses as he looks into heaven once again. As the praises of heaven now temporarily subside, there's all this crescendo of praise. And things grow silent for a moment. And John's trying to take it all in. And then his attention is directed to another scene. John sees in the right hand of God what the text calls a book. It's a scroll. And there is detailed writing on the inside. And there would be uh, summary writing of what the book was about on the outside. And there are seven separate seals that enclose the contents of the book. So uh, I could have brought something, but if, if you would take a piece of paper and then you were to roll it up, that would be somewhat like a scroll would look. And then the way this probably happened is then on this first piece of paper, there would be a scroll, there would be a seal. Think like, you know, a signet ring when the wax. And so you have this, this blob of wax here and it has this signet ring, no doubt from God, and it, it encloses this scroll. And then there'd been another one around that and another seal and then another one around that. And these probably would have been opened consecutively. But it would have looked like, like a single book. And, and, and each one enclosed by these seven seals, these seven um, impenetrable uh, bonds here that hold this book together that only a worthy one could open. And this is what John sees. And as the praises of heaven temporarily subside, John looks upon the hand of God holding the scroll. Then he witnesses what the Bible calls a strong angel. And the reason he's strong, because he's about to shout throughout the entire um, known and beyond universe. His voice has to reverberate to all of time past and to all of future eternal. And he shouts out uh, this, this incredible question, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose the seal thereof? And the scroll extended out by the hand of God contained the judgments that were about to befall the earth. But it represented more than that. It was also a kind of title deed to the universe. This title deed, it didn't contain a description, detail of all that Christ would inherit when he accepted the parchment, but rather how he will regain his inheritance by the means of the impending divine judgment that is coming on the earth. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 2, not only did Ezekiel in chapter 1 see the seraphim, not only did he get a, a, a vision of, of, of heaven himself, but evidently Ezekiel saw this same scroll that John now is looking upon. And in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, we know here what the contents say. He says, And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, <clears throat> and a roll of book, and a roll of a book was in them. And he spread it before me, and it was written within, details, and without, the summary. And there was written therein, lamentations, mournings, and woe. 
And this is what Christ is accepting. This title deed to the earth that contains its judgment. And Jesus Christ as the one who is worthy to receive it. It's a document that only he can open because he and he alone was worthy. And by worthy, I mean someone of, of irreproachable character, someone of prophetic right, someone of nobility, someone who had earned and paid the price to usher in the future because he had victoriously dealt with the sins of the past. He dealt with the fall of creation, the sin of mankind. Someone who was sought, who had the innate virtue and the worthiness of character and the divine right, as we learn here, someone who was the root of David, who came from his loin and lineage, uh, someone who, who, who came from uh, the very tribe of Benjamin, of the tribe of Judah, and it's called the, the line of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Christ here presents himself as one qualified in, in character and one in qualified in heritage, in nobility, and in prophecy. He qualifies to break the seals. He had the power to defeat Satan, to wipe out sin and its effect, and to reverse the curse. So the strong angel sends out this challenge. Is there anyone worthy? And of course, we know that Christ accepts in a moment. Is there anyone out there, the angel inquires, to set the universe aright, to subjugate the devil's hold on the world, to redeem all that's been lost? Now, you got to imagine John's watching this. And so there's the throne, and he perceives a hand in the, the scroll, and then the strong angel, Gabriel, Michael, I don't know, one of the seraphim, and he ushers this challenge. Now, you got to, you know, kind of got to put ourselves there. And then we're going to assume there's this moment of silence. Okay? Just silence. And John's looking, and he sees nothing. And the Bible says that when John perceives in the moment that the destiny of mankind um, and all of its curse is in jeopardy, and there's, there's no champion presenting himself in the moment, the Bible says that John begins to weep. The word weep here is like the deepest kind of mourning that the Bible can articulate in the Greek. And there's no one worthy to, to change the course of history, the, the lot of mankind. There was no one to overthrow death, destruction, and sin. And in the context, you got to think about this. John, in John's day, <clears throat> everyone who knew serving Christ was being persecuted. Every church, we, we realize, save Laodicea, they, they were suffering persecution. It, it, it was just, Christianity was, was in a thimble. Rome was, was attempting to crush it. These people were all crying out for some kind of deliverance from the Lord. And here's this moment in the future where John's thinking, hey, we're going to see something. And, and for the moment, there's nothing. And John begins to cry. To John, in the moment, all looked like loss, all looked like defeat. His tears were the tears of despondency and hopelessness. They were the same tears that came forth when creation fell. They're like the tears that fell the day that Jesus died. John's tears were representative of all the tears of humanity as they have navigated the hardship, the trials, the difficulties, the losses of life. They're the tears of those who have lost a loved one, 
Those who've journeyed through tribulation and trial have known pain and hurt. They're the tears of everyone who's ever experienced loss and cried in the Lord for help and for hope. The tears that desire a better day. They're tears that desire to see God's goodness unfold. They're tears that want to see God rise up and to conquer. The tears that John wept were because he was tired of seeing the evil. And he wanted to see Satan vanquished and conquered and the kingdom of God established. So John despairs. He despairs for the people of his day. And he despaired, no doubt, for hours. But that's not the end of the story, right? <laughs> the silence is interrupted when one of the elders speaks up. And he says, John, weep not. And there's this word, you know, it's, it's a small word, but behold. Can you imagine? Hey, John, I want you to see something. I want you to behold something. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a the prophetic one. There's one that his roots go all the way back to Genesis. The root of David, someone from the loins of David, from the, from the prophetic call of his family. There's one who hath prevailed and overcome. There is one who is worthy to open the book, to usher in the consummation of the age, to right every wrong, to redeem mankind, there's one now who is presenting himself as the rescuer and redeemer of history. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The one described here is the prophesied one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the title given to the coming Messiah in Genesis chapter 49, the root of David in Isaiah chapter 11, a descendant who had come both from the father and mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the messianic terms Titles given to the God-man who would one day usher in the millennial age, restore Israel to its glory, and bring salvation to humanity by grace through faith. John turns to see the one the elder speaks of. And, and, and can you imagine? So he's despondent, he's crying. Hey, don't cry. You need to be you need to turn around, you need to behold a look. And he's told, there's the lion of the tribe of Judas. In Old Testament thinking, the lion was, you know, this creature of magnificence. It was this, this creature of power and authority. And, you know, it was, it was a vision of a conquering king, of a powerful military. And so, can you imagine what John Turner was thinking he's going to see? Like this, Aslan, you know, for those who know that is. He's expecting to see Aslan. <laughs> But he turns and he sees something entirely different. He turns and he sees a lamb. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just a lamb, but it was a lamb that had been slain. Yet, fast, it's fascinating, this, this lamb that had been slain was standing. The language here is very specific. Looks like he's been slain. The marks are upon his body, the scars that speak of his, um, of his tribulation on the cross, they're there. But he's standing. 
bearing the marks and scars of his crucifixion. He wasn't the lion who conquered, who met our greatest need, but it was the lamb. Now, the lion is going to emerge. <laughs> in the late rain, the lion's going to be there. But what John sees in heaven in this moment, the conqueror, the king, the Messiah is a lamb. And this lamb, though, has seven horns. I don't know how this, this looks in pictures, but we can picture the, you know, the horns that maybe a, a, a ram would have, but there's seven. Of course, seven represents the number of perfection and completion. Horns represent in the Bible, especially the Old Testament prophetic literature, authority, government, power. And so it's, it's, you, for us, it might not be striking, but what John sees is a creature that, that would, no one would consider to have authority or power. That when you look upon it, you'd see no might, you'd see no majesty, you'd see no government, you'd see no ruler of the universe. And yet, that's exactly what the lamb is. It has seven horns. It is the ultimate power of the universe standing right in front of John. And then it has seven eyes thereabout. It's, it, it's the term that Zechariah uses, Isaiah uses. It, it, the seven eyes are a reference to the deity of the Holy Spirit and his omniscience. And that this lamb uh, has... It's a picture of the Trinity here together, God upon the throne, the Son and the Holy Spirit all in, enshrined here before the throne. This is a way of saying that Jesus Christ, this Lamb, is God Himself. He is deity. He has all the right to rule and reign and be judge over all. And it is the Lamb that takes the scroll. And when that title deed, when that transfer from God the Father to God the Son takes place. The worship begins all over again, like in chapter 4. I don't know what it's like to see a seraphim bow down, forgive me, but I bet that's pretty cool. And then the 24 elders. And the Bible tells us that this time, they're not necessarily casting their crowns, they did in chapter 4, but this time they all have a harp. I don't have the time to take us back in the Old Testament, but the harp really in history in the Old Testament symbolized two things. It symbolizes worship, obviously, but it also is a, is a, is a symbol of prophetic fulfillment. And often in the Old Testament, when, when something prophetic would happen or about to be fulfilled, you would find in the context of the text there also a harp. So the signification here is these, people, these elders, these creatures, the host of heaven, are all worshiping God, but they're all signifying something prophetic is happening. The world is now about to change. And then um, there's a something else there. And maybe there's something there from you. So these bowls that are presented to the Lamb. And the Bible says that, and I understand all the imagery here, um, but it says it's filled with the prayers of the saints. You know those times when you and I pray and it feels like they go right there and they bounce right back? I want to assure you, if you're a child of God, that never happens. That's how you feel about it. 
But when you and I speak to God, because we are a kingdom of priests and kings, our prayers are taken to the very throne room of God. Amen. And I understand all of this, but here all the, all the prayers of all the Old Testament saints and all those who have been persecuted, all those from the Church of Asia Minor who cried for, for vindication and deliverance, all, all those who have ever asked God for any kind of help and hope and deliverance, all those who wanted things to be right that have been made wrong, all those prayers are offered up as an as a act of worship to God. And He receives them. And the Bible says there's something that happens now that evidently hadn't happened in all of eternity. The songs that these creatures have sung, the angels have sung, these have all been hymns of praise, no doubt rehearsed a myriad of times before God the Father. But all of a sudden the Bible says now there's a new song sung. And this is the song of the redeemed. This is the, this is the song that all those who know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And a new song of redemption breaks out in the course of heaven. Praising the lion, praising the lamb. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, thou hast overcome. And has redeemed us to God. And now here's some great soteriology. By the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. A phrase used four times in the book of Revelation. Describe all of humanity. That had to sound incredible. John, here, I mean, think about the context. John's got these small band of churches. He knows there's probably a few in Jerusalem. There's those in Antioch. There's these here in Asia Minor. And, and it's holding on by a thread. And the persecution of Rome seems ominous. And all of a sudden, John looks up and sees 10,000 times 10,000 of thousands of redeemed individuals singing praise to God out of every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every country. The Bible says they're representative of all humanity there singing praise to God. All of a sudden, the defeat of his day had to look pretty small for the coming triumph of the future. John had to be pretty hopeful about what was to come. And the host of the redeemed began to sing. And John, had, his heart had to leap. He had to realize now that the flame that had started in Jerusalem had spread throughout the world. And what had been positionally true would now become practically true that one day we would be a kingdom of kings and priests worshiping God and ruling with Him. And we'll join Him one day in this great day as we go into the millennial kingdom the chorus growls louder as more and more exult in the praise of God. And John's vision of the future is now imminent. That means we're waiting for this great event to take place. We know this is recorded in the apocalypse for these people of John's day to be an encouragement to them in their time of persecution and trial. And it should be encouragement to us today because this is our final outcome as well. But for us, very quickly, what's, this, what's the application? Well, John's privileged view into the future, there's so much here. It's a study of Christology, the person and deity of Christ. It's a study of soteriology, the teaching of how we are saved by the blood of the Lamb. It's a study of eschatology, how things are going to come to happen in the, few, in the future. And, and really begin in chapter 6, we're going to see how the future unfolds during the time of the tribulation. 
It's a study of worship that Christ is deserving of all of our gratitude and praise by presenting himself as the lamb that was slain, securing our salvation. But if I could just offer this, the central theme and application for us is this truth. This is so simple, but I want you to grab it today before we leave. Humanity's hope. Okay, I want you all to listen. Look up here. Humanity's hope. Your hope. Today and in the future. Our hopes are utterly dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the central main theme of our text. There's this central drama in the scene of heaven. And the drama unfolds when there's no one to take the scroll. <clears throat> the angel ushers in the eternity past, the eternity future. Is there anyone, any man? Is there any cause? Is there any, is there any, is there any uh, politician? Is there any king? Is there any, is there any governor? Is there any ruler? Is there anyone worthy? to change the outcome, the course of humanity and of mankind. And none can be found for a moment, it seems, that mankind will remain lost and our future will be desolate. Because you and I know it's not in our power to redeem ourselves. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. We have no hope of heaven. We have no hope of future. We don't really have a hope of a decent life apart from Christ. Amen. It's a lesson of the futility of man to achieve the purposes of God. But then the drama is suddenly reversed and mourning is turned into rejoicing when the Lord Jesus Christ presents himself as humanity's champion. The one who holds the power to change not just the world, but my heart and yours. Jesus in the text teaches first and foremost that victory comes from him. But he teaches something more. That is victory and ours comes not by might nor by power, but by the spirit and the agency of God's Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ as the lamb. Who holds the power to redeem your heart? Christ alone. Amen. Who holds the authority? Who is the door that can invite us to the portal of heaven? Christ alone. Whose blood is sufficient to take away your sins? Christ alone. Whose word is the final authority as a guide for our lives? Well, Christ alone. See, we need to understand that our hope is in Christ for everything. That Jesus and Jesus alone holds the power and the keys to our life. He holds the power of forgiveness in Acts 4.12. The Bible tells us that there is, neither is there salvation. Neither is there salvation. Let me just stop there for a moment. Consider that all this word implies. It refers to our need for the forgiveness of sins, for the atonement of all that we have done wrong in life. And the truth here is that only by the means of the blood of Christ can you and I possess the righteousness of God. 
You and I can never present ourselves. We have no hope, no ability. There's, There's nothing that you and I can do in this world to stand before God in righteousness. We have to have the righteousness that comes from the provision of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, alone. Today, if you are here and you want forgiveness of sins, if you want heaven to be your home, there's only one way to find it, only one way to get there, and that is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not by going to church. It is not by some religious sacrament. It is not by rituals. It is not by routine. It is not by being good. But it is by the blood of Christ and Christ alone. There's no other way. Narrow is the way. The Bible says he is the way. But salvation implies more than that. Neither is there salvation. Salvation also means to be rescued, to be delivered, to be brought joy. It means to experience prosperity and goodness, the best in life. It means to know grace and peace. And I want to say to you today, I want to say to you teenagers, mankind spends the majority of their life climbing ladders, resting on the wrong wall, chasing their tail, chasing what they think will satisfy. They, they, they spend all the time stuffing their pockets with stuff that just have holes and it satisfies not. We spend our, our, our whole time like drinking salt water, always wanting more if we don't have enough of and, and never bring us any satisfaction. And I want to tell you, if you want to find salvation in life, you want to find hope. You want to find happiness. You, you want to find a life that's actually meaningful. It's only in Christ. Well, I, I think I'll go out here and try this. You, you just go right ahead. And I'm not, I don't want to be unkind or facetious, but we'll just see how that goes. And there's a, ten thousands of tales of men who've climbed the ladder to its top and found it empty in vain. There's not hope, there's not salvation in any other. There's no salvation in politics. There's no salvation in science. There's no salvation in enlightenment. There's no salvation in your moral reformation. There's no salvation in your good works. And there's no salvation in any human effort. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. Not just their sins saved, but their lives saved. What we need today in our world, in our experience, in our marriage, in your homes, in our church, in our country, is what only Jesus Christ can provide. We need His advocacy. The challenge for us this morning is in all of our attempts to redeem our life, to make something of it, to live it to the fullest, to solve its riddles, to overcome its perplexities and struggles, to experience and finally find the joy and peace we're all looking for, The challenge is to quiet all of that activity, to quiet all of our effort, and to simply acknowledge and allow Christ to be in His proper place, and that is on the throne. Not just in heaven, but in your heart.
Victory and salvation is found in Christ alone. And it is also found in his way. When you and I are in trouble, you know who we call for? The lion. <laughs> you know what we want in the moment? Just to be rescued. All, all we want is may the lion of the tribe of Judah come and rescue me. Very often in our times of trouble, you know who comes? The lamb. The lamb. Because it's also true in our lives. It's not by might. It's not by power. <clears throat> it's very often victory in our lives is often found by dying, by yielding, by surrendering. You see, <clears throat> Jesus won <clears throat> not by being a warrior, but by allowing himself to be a martyr. It wasn't in strength, but rather in surrender. It was the standing lamb that brings victory. And this principle runs throughout the whole of the Bible. And we need to discover this. When we are weak, then he is strong. So you don't always, and God's not always going to come to us and deliver us as the lion. Now, one day he's going to. But sometimes God wants us in the moment to learn to yield to him. Um, you have a marriage problem? I'm not against reading all the books you can. I'm not. I'd be a help to you. I'm not against you going to counseling. Some of us might need that. But I'm going to tell you, you're probably not going to find and have the aha moment. Oh, there's a principle that's going to fix all my problems. I'm not saying you don't need to learn some things. I'm saying this. If you want to f really fix what's broken in your life, you might want to start like the pictures of Revelation 4 and 5 did and find your way to your knees. Asking for the advocacy of the Lamb. Asking for the help of one who teaches us to surrender to self-will and the hurry and flurry of all our activity that, that, that realizes there's genuine limitations to human wisdom and knowledge and actually seeks God's help. As simple and elementary as it is, do we go to God and the Lamb when we need Him? You see, it was when Abraham gave up on manipulation deceit and that he submitted himself to God that he, that he grew, became the friend of God. It's when Jacob stopped wrestling in his own strength and surrendered to Jesus that he became, became a man who was changed. It's when Moses stopped relying on himself and trusted in God that he led a nation and split a sea. It was when Gideon stopped, stepped counting his men and started trusting God that the victory was won. It's when David went to battle, not in his own might, but in the name and the power of the Lord that he slayed the giant. And when Paul finally accepted his thorn in the flesh and finally understood that when he was weak, that Christ the Lamb was strong, well, he became the most influential Christian who ever lived. <laughs> to borrow from the inside of James, what we need today is to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord so he can lift you up. This morning, I want to remind and encourage you, we are here today. You are here today, and you are still utterly dependent upon Christ to go to heaven. No other answer.
A great and terrible day is coming when Jesus will actually do what is recorded in Revelation chapter 6 and beyond. And when he does, you want to make sure that your, your life is hid in the blood of Christ. When that day comes, where will you be? Among the ten thousands of ten thousands or still upon the earth? And what about today? Are you navigating life in your own strength, your own wisdom, your own ability? Would you rather now yield yourselves to the greater help and hope of God? Humbling yourselves before our Savior, yielding your struggles and failures, your discouragements, your hopes to Him, and asking for the Lion of the tribe of Judah to be your advocate.